welcome to the financialsombrero.com podcast, episode number two, real estate investing, how to make money, house hacking, and leapfrog investing. During the first episode, I talked about some general terms related to personal finance. For this episode, I'm going to jump a little deeper into some details of specifically how you can make money in real estate using some pretty common techniques uh, without being a real estate agent, without being a real estate professional. These are two techniques that I've used, and I'm looking forward to sharing them with you. All right, so first is house hacking. So what is house hacking? I think of house hacking as a way where you can leverage your ability, a little bit of luck, and your situation with a house that either you own, or in my case, one that I rented, where you can reduce the amount of your housing expenses. That's how I define a house hacking. And I'm going to tell you how I did it. So this was when I was in my college days. I rented a four-bedroom condominium along with three other guys um, while we were in college. And it was an interesting situation. The landlord for this condominium, he lived out of state. So what he wanted was for one person of the four of us to be responsible and just write one check for the whole rent for the month, every month. I guess he had some experiences in the past where he had four tenants. He was managing four checks. He had some tenants that didn't pay or they didn't pay on time. And he realized it was better um, to set up a new situation. Now, right when I moved in, he was getting ready to sell the property. I think he had sort of had it having to deal with um, four tenants, getting different degrees of success, collecting the rents. So when I met him, he noticed that I had paid my rent on time on the first every month, which you should do when you rent. So I talked to him on the phone and I offered him this deal. I said, I'll tell you what, I'll write you a check every month. I'll collect the rents from everyone. I'll get people out, bring people in. I'll tell you who's living here. We'll use the same contracts that I used. I'll just duplicate it three more times and I'll essentially be your default land default landlord. Now he was fine with that. Um, it, from his standpoint, he got a check every month. Um, he didn't have to worry about how the house was being managed. I did a good job of making sure the house or the condominium um, was kept in good condition. And you know, there were things that I had to deal with. So people would move out. Sometimes we had to kind of push them out if they were non-paying type student. But overall, it really wasn't that hard. I was essentially managing uh, three college roommates. And the other thing that gave me the advantage was I had a job while I was in undergraduate school. And because I had that job, I just knew I had a little bit of money coming in where I knew I could always make my rent. But this is where the house hacking became really interesting. What I realized was as rents started to increase in my area, the landlord had just one expectation for this total amount. So as one tenant of this condominium, one of my roommates moved out, the next tenant moving in, I would charge a little more rent. Because you have to understand, I was managing it. I was the default landlord for this out-of-state investor. So as that new tenant would come in, I would charge a little bit more. And each time a tenant would move in and out, which happens a lot in a college town, um, I would bump up the rent just a little bit more. And it got to the point where the rents had gone up enough where I was essentially living there for free. And I talked to the landlord about that. He was fine with it. He just wanted his one check. So what it 
ended up being is the three rooms um, rented out covered the rent for the whole place. So basically, I was living for free. That's house hacking. It worked really well. I lived there for a few years, and I learned to sort of develop some skills about being a landlord, and I realized someday I want to buy my own place, and I want to be able to rent it out. Um, the, the experience overall just taught me about the importance of saving money, the importance of having enough money to cover your rent, and in my case, I had to have enough money to cover the rent for the whole house. So I, I learned some basic skills about being a landlord. I certainly didn't learn all the legal side of things. I essentially had a default contract that I would just Xerox copy every month, wipe the name out, um, put the new person's name in, um, put the new dates in. I really didn't take the time to read the contracts, but I understood enough of the language that said, here was the amount, here was the deposit, and I, and I managed those funds and and delivered the rent at the end of the month. So it was a good deal. I was living for free basically uh, for the last couple of years in college. So the next type of investing I'm going to talk about, it's a little bit different. This is called, um, sometimes it's called leapfrog investing in terms of real estate. Sometimes it's called trading up investing. Um, they're both sort of the same idea. And this is where you, you buy a home and you live in it as your primary residence for at least two years and depending on the market if the market rises significantly which in the state of california over the last let's say 15 20 years that has happened significantly definitely within the last 10 years um, what you can do is you can sell that property now this is sort of one interesting tax advantage and a loophole that most people aren't aware of and that's this if you sell your primary residence and you make a gain and the gain is the difference between what you sell it for versus what you bought it for. So just using round numbers, if you buy a house for $500,000 and you sell it for $1 million two years later, you have a gain of $500,000. So in normal circumstances, when you make $500,000, you're going to have to pay, let's say, 30% uh, tax on that. So that would be $650,000 total you would have to make to take home $500,000. And like most people, you know, making $650,000 gross um, takes some time. It takes a lot of work to do that. When you sell your primary residence, the IRS provides this tax loophole, and it's called uh, Section 121. You can look it up on irs.gov. But when you sell that house for a million dollars that you only paid $500,000 for, you actually clear $500,000. You pay zero taxes on it. And I don't know if... I mean, there are very few situations in the tax code where you get such a good deal, and this is one of them, and this is what my family and I did. So we'd buy a home, we'd live in it for a while, the house would appreciate, we lucked out that we bought in a rising market, so the house would appreciate significantly, we would sell it, and upon selling it, we would essentially have a bunch of freed up cash, tax-free, that we could either reinvest, we could spend, um, we could do other things with it. In our case, we just continued on the next property. So th this idea of leapfrog investing, it's got some downsides, obviously, and I'm going to talk about those. So one is it's a, it's a timing thing. You have to buy the house at the right time. You have to have a significant appreciation for it to be worth your while. Moving houses, moving your family uh, can be a difficult and stressful thing. So I understand that. 
The other thing is um, you want to make sure that the type of house that you buy is a type of house, if you're planning on selling it, is a type of house that you can sell without putting a significant amount of money into it. So if you buy a house for $500,000 and yet you have to put 200000 in upgrades or teardown type upgrades, well, in that case, you've put two hundred into it. So you're not, you're not clearing as much money because you've had to put cash into the house. The best case scenario is finding that house for $500,000, fixing it up a small amount, and still being able to sell it for that significant profit. So it's always a little bit of a, a little bit of a game figuring out how much money to put into a house so that you can improve it enough, so that you can make that higher sale price. So here are the things that I would think about if you are crazy enough to do what I've done a couple times, and it's always worked out very well, and it's definitely worked out in my favor. Here are the things I would think about if you're thinking about doing uh, leapfrog or trade-up investing. So first off, if it's all feasible, purchase the home in the same area. And the reason why I say this is, down the road, if you have kids, you don't want to be pulling your kids out of school districts because you have this investment idea, you want to move from house A to house B in another town. Once you have an area that you like and you feel like the house appreciation is going to continue, stay in that same area. And that's exactly what we did. Um, most of the homes we purchased were within two miles of each other, always within the same school district. The result is we didn't have to pull our kids out of school because we moved to another district. We always stayed in the same district or did a inter-district transfer, but we never had to, had to pull them out. So that's the first thing I would think about. Second thing is, um, if you're going to live this kind of lifestyle where you're buying and selling houses, and by the way, your friends and family are going to think you're completely out of your mind when you do it, because the general concept for at least our parents' generation was you buy a home, you get a 30-year mortgage, you live in it for 30 years, and then it's paid off. But that wasn't a model I wanted to follow. I had read and heard about this opportunity where you could buy and sell houses, so I, I, I took a different route. All right, so, so back to my step. So the second step is... It really helps out if you can keep your possession volume low. Um, another way of saying that is live lean. Don't fill your house with stuff. Don't fill your garages with excess stuff because every time you move, you're going to have to sell those things. Additionally, when you're showing the house, you can't just take all of your stuff and shove it in one of the garages to make the house look lean. You want to show that there's plenty of space in the garage. You want to show that the type of furniture you have fits really well and that... Um, it's basically you, you want to sell the house. And what you'll find is when people show houses when they have a lot of stuff, they usually take a big truck and they take most of the stuff out and they stage it. That's difficult to do if you're living in it. So my point on this is live in the house, live in a way where you can kind of live lean and not sort of avoid having too many possessions. All right. The other thing is furniture. So you get the type of furniture you want to have and the type of decorations, you should purchase these in the manner that's sort of applied to the house structure. You don't want to have, let's say, couches from a 4,000-square-foot house squeezed into a 2,000-square-foot house because it's just not going to look right. Again, when you want to sell the house down the road, you're going to have the wrong furniture, so you're going to have to take that furniture out, and then you're going to have to stage it with smaller furniture. Why not just keep the type of furniture that's going to fit with the type of architecture you have or the type of size house you have? Um, next thing I would do is... Always consider new construction purchases on homes. Um, where I live, the new construction purchases give you the most opportunity for that exponential growth 
in home value. Um, they're also easier to sell because when a family moves to your area, let's say from another area, they could go look at 20-year homes, 30-year homes and see, okay, you know, I could fix up this kitchen, I could do that, yeah, that's a good deal. Or they go look at that new home that you bought and let's say now it's three or four years old, it's still going to look new. You could paint the doors, you can kind of clean things up to make it look like it did when you bought it new a few years ago. New construction homes are generally easier to sell. That's just uh, the way it is when it comes to homes. It doesn't mean that uh, resale homes don't sell. I'm just saying uh, when people are looking for homes, especially in the higher income areas, they tend to flock to the newer communities. All right, another thing that is really important is this. You need to avoid overpaying for upgrades, especially when you buy a new construction home. So th this is how it works. Home builders charge a certain amount for the base price of the house, and then you're often shown, oh, well, there's these other upgrades you could have, these floors, these countertops, these whatever. The way these upgrades work is you might be paying as much as a 300% markup because that's how the builder's making money. Um, they're buying the countertops from maybe, maybe they have their own a storage location where they've bought a bulk of these countertops from another high-end place. But it's not the same as you going and looking for that countertop yourself, hiring your own installer, and putting it in. If you do that, it, the, the price would probably be something like a third. Now, that's not how it works when you buy a new home. When you buy a new home, you buy it the way it is, and whatever upgrades you agreed on, that's what you get. What I've seen people do, and I think it's really smart, is you buy the base-level new home you insist you don't want any upgrades and you start with you know, the cheapest carpet floors. And then when you move in the home, you get your own crew to come in, rip the floors out and put those nice wood floors, those gray wood floors that you want or those bamboo um, colored wood floors that you want. The other idea here is when you do that, you are hiring your own team. So you have your own contractors that you can figure out and try and find the best price for that work. When you do this with a new home, you're basically using the contractors that they've subcontracted to, and that's the builder. And, and that is how they make their money. Um, you don't want to be in that position where you overpay $300,000 for upgrades, where in the open market, those $300,000 in upgrades would only cost, let's say, $100,000. So um, the other thing is you have to find the right area. You have to understand your specific tax implications. I've certainly mentioned the IRS uh, provision 121. Um, that's something that you should understand if you're going to do this. The other um, way to think of it is you should think about a strategy. You know, What is your strategy with buying and selling homes? I mean, at some point you want to have a home that is paid for, that you can live in, that in an area that you like. So if your strategy is you want to own multiple properties, you might want to settle on having a primary residence that is a smaller home. Maybe you don't need such a large home. Maybe instead of that large home, you could sell it and buy two smaller homes. All right. Um, I'm thinking that these results um, that have happened in the last, let's say, 10, 15 years in California um, might not be recreated in the next 10, 15 years. And I understand that. However, it is a strategy that can work. Even if you're not making $500,000, um, you can still make money you can still get that tax-free benefit. All right. And then there's the idea of who can help you do this. So as I mentioned, you do not need to be a realtor to do this. In my case, I've always relied on really smart, really um, 
well-connected realtors. I've, I've had one realtor that I've used on most of my transactions, and it's because I trust her. She knows the area. She knows the pricing. Yes, I'd be better off if I bought and sold houses myself, but if I have if you have a full-time career and you have other commitments, it may be difficult to be your own realtor and maintain your career. And in my case, I decided it wasn't what I wanted to do. That could change down the road. But for now, I have someone who I can utilize. I can call her really at any time and ask her and say, hey, I have some questions about this area. We're thinking about maybe getting this little duplex down here. What do you know about the area? What do you know about the prices? And um, if it's someone who's well-connected, who works in the real estate industry on a regular basis, not someone who's just kind of doing it part-time as a side job, which there are quite a few realtors that work kind of on that way. Um, if it's someone who's who really understands the market, they're going to have those answers for you. And yes, when you sell the home, you're going to have to deal with a significant pain. Even if you can reduce the the cost down, you're going to pay anywhere from 4 to 5% of the total sell price. And that's where for people who want to be, get their real estate license and handle the transactions themselves through maybe another broker, um, you can do that. In my case, that's not what I did. Um, I've always been happy having a really good realtor to help me out. Okay, well, this concludes episode number two of the financialsombrero.com podcast. Thank you for listening in. If you'd like to reach me, you can go ahead and send me an email at money at com, or you can reach me on Twitter. Thanks again for joining me. I look forward to talking to everyone again at our next episode, podcast number three. Thank you.